Hi, Misfits. This is Kate. And this is Kevin. Welcome to Horrorwood. to cover today so I think we're just gonna jump right the fuck in and I want to start by uh, giving a content warning Mm. for the death of an innocent black man at the hands of the LAPD here we go okay Anthony Dwayne Lee was born on July 17, 1961 in Redding California and grew up in Sacramento He had a younger sister named Tina, and by all accounts, it seems they were close and got along well. Great. When Anthony and Tina were adults, he even gave her away at her wedding because their father had passed away. Oh, that's super sweet. Anthony attended Valley High School in Sacramento, which apparently must have a great sports program because I looked it up and several NFL players have come out of that school, including a Super Bowl champion. So. Which Go one? off Valley High. I don't remember the name because I didn't I wouldn't write recognize it. Down. I just wanted to sound <laughs> like I was like gonna shoot the <laughs> I shit was about say, sports. I was like, do you care which one? Kevin? I really don't. I didn't find anything suggesting Anthony was into sports, okay. although standing at a towering six foot four inches, damn, his height would have likely given him an advantage had yeah. he been. Yeah. All tall people don't have to do sports. Oh, though. yeah, I'm not saying that. No, 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 no. I'm, I wasn't. I'm just saying that in general. Like yes. it feels like someone sees someone of a certain height, I, yep. and they're like, "So you played basketball?" Right, right, right. And they're like, "Actually, no. I'm a concert pianist." <laughs> As a teenager, Anthony grew kind of bored of high school. I think, I get it. yeah, I think he was kind of restless and was looking for some excitement. Mm-hmm. He found it. In Sacramento's gang scene, unfortunately. Well, mother, that's, I mean, that's not where you look for some fun, right? It's not the ideal location. I mean, bowling alleys, strip malls. And that's it? (laughs) That's the end of your list? That's where I find fun. Good times. Anthony joined the Crips. Like, of the Bloods and the Crips infamy. Oh, wow. I thought the Crips were only in Los Angeles, but apparently not. I only know those names. I don't know. I don't think I know, like, origins or the story of... And neither do I, and we're not going to go into it. No, it's probably for for good reason. Yeah, other than to say the Crips and the Bloods were a huge rivalry. Okay. Anthony started selling drugs. He was involved in street fights, and understandably, his family was worried about him. His mom was like, this is not the future I want for my son. No. Anthony described himself as being misogynistic and very destructive in his teen years. Okay. I'm not sure where his misogyny came from because from everything I read, it seems like his relationship with his mom and his sister was good. So I don't know where that came from. Probably the people he hung out with. Possibly. Things changed for Anthony when he was 20 years old. He got into a gang-related fight, and during the fight, someone stabbed him in the back. Oh, my God. Like, literally stabbed him. Like right him, in the back. Stabbed him, yes. 
His mom sat with him in the emergency room at the hospital, and while they were there, she randomly found a brochure about an acting class. At a hospital? Yeah. I don't know if someone had left it behind or if, like, this hospital was just super progressive. I'm not sure what (laughs) was going on. That's, I mean, that's, I feel like that's the most California thing I've ever heard. You know what? You're right. (laughs) You're right. The class was $30, and she told Anthony, I will pay the $30 if you'll just go and take this class. She was just looking for some alternative. Something for else for him to, like, pick up a hobby. Yes, to keep him off the streets. So he agreed. And it wasn't some big, renowned professional course. This was a local community acting class. But it provided a place where he could focus his energy and put that energy towards something positive rather than negative. Yeah. The class performed shows at retirement homes and assisted living facilities around the area. And Anthony said, quote, that was the beginning of my discovering the power of compassion. Someone told me a story once that they it was a friend of mine overseas and they're an actor and a musical theater actor. Mm-hmm. And so they would go to nursing homes and assisted living facilities and sing mm-hmm. to to the residents. And he told me a story that like he was holding an old lady's hand and singing a song from Wicked to her. Mm-hmm. But as he was doing that, she was like shitting herself. Oh my so God. it was just like really intense. I thought there was going to be more to that story. And no, I, don't, I just wanted to share that. I don't have a segue from that, so we're just going to continue. No, dive right back in. There shouldn't be a segue. Uh, Anthony said he learned that compassion isn't weakness, but a strength. Good. I think more people need to learn that. Yeah. He started moving up in the ranks, and his first professional gig was with the, bleh, was with the Sacramento Theater Company. Ooh. Anthony had a strong stage presence. Not only was he very tall, but he was described as having a commanding baritone voice. So you've got this towering black man with a big voice. He got noticed and he got a lot of theater work. Good for him. Around the age of 25, he began practicing Nichiren Buddhism. I take it he was a good actor. Oh, yeah. I mean. To get, you he, know, consistent theater work. He, yes. He worked at, like, some of the biggest festivals and huge repertory Damn. theaters. Yeah. Congrats to him. That's amazing. So around the age of 25, he began practicing Nichiren Buddhism, which is a form of Japanese Buddhism that emphasizes self-empowerment and personal transformation. Great. In the most basic terms, Nichiren Buddhism teaches that an individual can reach enlightenment in their lifetime, but that in order to do so, they have to accept responsibility for their own actions and work to change their negative thoughts, which can lead to destructive behavior, into positive ones that lead to personal growth. Whereas other forms of Buddhism might focus on a spiritual leader that guides that person towards enlightenment, in Nichiren Buddhism, it's up to you to work on yourself. Oh, hey, I actually kind of like that idea. I do too. It feels more in line with like um, mental health and like yes. therapy than it does with like a deity who that you have to wait for right. ultimate enlightenment after dying. Right. Yes. And so Anthony really took to this philosophy and around the same time he began practicing Nichiren Buddhism, he auditioned for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. That's a big one. It's huge. For those not in the theater world, Oregon Shakes 
is a big deal. It's known around the world. It's where a lot of actors have performed before they became famous, including Gene Smart, William Hurt, Kyle MacLachlan, Stephanie Beatrice, among many others. That's a li- quite a list. And when Anthony auditioned for it, he was offered a 10-month contract for their upcoming season. And it was while he was in Oregon that Anthony developed an interest in classic works. He said, quote, I was the only person in the company who didn't have a master's degree in acting, so it was a great education just to be there. Not only did he perform leading roles in the festival, but it was there that he met actress Serena Scholl. And they started a little romance. <gasps> Serena... Once the season ended at Oregon Shakes, Anthony and Serena moved back to Sacramento, but shortly after, Anthony got cast in the play The Colored Museum, which was taking place in Seattle. So he and Serena packed their bags and were like, I guess we're going to Seattle. Once there, Anthony sensed that he could probably get consistent work, so he and Serena decided to stay in Seattle, and they married there on August 8th, 1988. His career continued to grow. He performed with the Seattle Repertory Company as well as Seattle's Intamin Theater. And these are not just small bit parts we're talking about here. He performed in A Raisin in the Sun, The Cider House Rules. He portrayed Malcolm X in the play The Meeting. Oh my God. So he's literally landing these really big, iconic roles. At at big theaters. At big theaters. Shit. He went all in when Mm -hmm. preparing for a role. When he played Malcolm X, he studied probably hours and hours of tape just to get Malcolm X's like idiosyncrasies down, get, you know, work on his characteristics and the, the little details. He read eight books on him and brought in videos and music to help him get into the role because he wanted to be able to include all of those small details into his performance. Anthony also portrayed the title role in Othello, and journalist Misha Burson was in the audience for his performance of Othello and said, quote, he delivered Othello's agonized speeches in a voice of rumbling velvet and with an electric Uh, intensity that sliced the fetid air like lightning. Rumbling velvet. Isn't that just the fucking best description of a person's voice? I love that. Love it. That's amazing. In a 1993 interview with the Seattle Times, Anthony's longtime friend Tim Bond told that same journalist, Misha Burson, Anthony's just a no-nonsense kind of guy. He's very clear about his goals in life, and he goes after them with gusto. Nice. In addition to his work on stage, Anthony also dedicated his time to helping Seattle's at-risk kids. He helped create a play with Seattle Rep that toured around to different schools to bring theater to kids that might not have the opportunity otherwise. And the students really looked up to him. Tim Bond, his friend I mentioned earlier, said, quote, when Anthony talks to kids, they listen. He's very much a role model in the way he carries himself with dignity and quiet authority. I think he was able to draw from his own past and his experiences with the gang and show kids that it's possible to turn your life around. Anthony said he wanted to let other people know that you can dream a dream and make it come true. Like that song from Les Mis. I dreamed, dreamed a dream in time gone by. That's exactly like that. Slowly, Anthony began getting work on camera. I was going to say, mm-hmm. if he's able to kind of hone and, and like hone in on the intricacies of like yes. an acting performance, I feel like that's translatable to yes, to the screen. Yes, he's getting he's getting his chops on the stage, yeah. and 
Then he starts getting work on camera. The first was as a doctor in the TV movie Face of a Stranger, which starred Gina Rollins, Tyne Daly, and Cynthia Nixon. It was four years before his next on-screen credit. He did one episode of a short-lived series called Under One Roof, which was set in Seattle. Mm. Around that time, playwright Mitch Hale was workshopping his new play, Buffalo Soldier, in Seattle, which Anthony was a part of. The play had its official staged premiere in Los Angeles. So Anthony moved to L.A. and appeared as one of the leads in the show, and he ended up winning the L.A. Weekly Award for Best Actor. Unfortunately, the following year in 1996, Anthony and Serena divorced. However, his career continued to grow. It seemed like now that he was based in L.A., he was getting more and more opportunities to appear on camera. He did a number of guest spots in TV shows, including Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Oh, my God. That was huge. I, oh, oh. Kevin is having some feelings <laughs> about Dr. Quinn, Medicine Here Woman. Here we go. We're in it. We're talking about my childhood. <laughs> he also appeared in NYPD Blue, nice. The Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. Arliss, Chicago Hope. That's just a few. Wow. He was also getting film work, some more TV movies like The Second Civil War and Little Richard, but he also got a role in Liar Liar starring Jim Carrey. Aye. He played a lawyer at the beginning of the movie, I believe. Okay. Then in October of 2000, he got the guest starring role of Mr. Florea in an episode of ER. And of course, ER was huge back then, so he was really excited. And it was for their Thanksgiving episode. That's a big deal. Someone was just talking to me about ER. My colleague, who I work with in the office, mm. is like re-watching ER from the beginning. Oh, that's not a show I would uh, normally uh, think <laughs> someone would want to do that, but okay. But she, she was like... She's like, oh yeah, watch some ER, and I was like, whoa, wow, because I forgot the ER took place in Chicago. Yeah, but it was shot in LA. Of course, it was. That episode of ER also had Sally Field as a guest star. Oh my god, he's working with cool people. He's making a name for himself. Listeners, Kate and I saw Sally Field in person a few years back. Okay, I'm having deja vu because I feel like we've talked about it. We probably have. I'm sure we have. I think Kevin brings it up as often. But I just want to bring it on up as as much as possible. So Mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that. We saw her. She's amazing. Read her memoir. It's super depressing. I didn't read it yet. Kevin. (laughs) Continue. Anthony was planning to spend Thanksgiving with his sister, Tina, so they were going to get to watch his episode together. On Friday, October 27th of 2000, not long after taping his ER episode, Anthony became a district leader in the Buddhist organization he was a part of, and that was huge. From what I can tell, it's like a ceremony where he was the guest of honor. His friends showed up to witness this special moment for him. And some of the kids he had mentored through his community outreach program Mm -hmm. were also there. So it was a really special day. That night, he attended a Halloween party hosted by a friend of his. And he's feeling good. You know, he's got a lot to celebrate. This party wasn't just any little Halloween party. It was at a mansion, for one thing. That sounds like fun. Oh, I want to go to a Halloween party at a mansion. But you might not want to go to this one on oh, October twenty no, seventh. Oh, I of forgot 2000. this was a Halloween. Oh no. Ninety seven oh one Yoakum Drive is located in Beverly Hills nine oh two one. We talk about Beverly Hills a lot. I feel like. Well, that's because this podcast is called. Well, Horror no, Road. I I know that, but like <laughs> there are different parts of sure 
LA and Hollywood, right? Yeah. Oh, there's plenty. Yeah. <laughs> this particular house is yes. nicknamed the castle. And when you see the picture I'm going to post of it, you'll understand why. It's very castle-like. It's over 5,000 square feet. And at the time of this party in 2000, it was shared by five guys who were renting the property. Got it. In Marietta, Ohio, where my mom is from, there is a house, a historic house called The Castle, which I grew up around. And it was kind of a big old mansion-y style house on like a residential street. And so we'd always drive by it really slow because I was convinced it was haunted. Was it? Uh, I don't know. Mm. I'm okay. I'm gonna look that up. You should. The guys renting this property were Tony Alfaro, Anthony Anselmi, Greg Day, the Richard Hull, and Jeffrey Denton. Jeffrey Denton was friends with Anthony Lee and is the one who invited him to this party. Jeffrey was also an actor. Because of its size and location, the castle had been known to be a party house even before these five guys began okay. living there. And according to neighbors, the previous tenants had a tendency to let things get pretty noisy. You said five guys, and I immediately wanted a hamburger. I thought about it when I typed those (laughs) notes, and I was like, should I reword that? But no. No, no, no. I love it. Go continue. Apologies. So in preparation for this Halloween party, these five guys wanted to make sure that they were being respectful of their neighbors. Oh, well, that's nice. Exactly. And I will say they really went above and beyond. One of those neighbors, David Cornbloom, said the guys went out of their way to be accommodating. They held a meeting with all the nearby residents to let them know they were going to be hosting this party. They wanted to give them a heads up and be like, hey, this is happening. One of those neighbors was known to have an issue with the parties that had been held there in the past. So the guys even offered to put that person up in a hotel for the weekend. Oh, my God. I would take that. I would, too. Hell, yeah. Even if I was okay with it, and they were like, hey, we'll put you up. I'm like, yes. I'd be like, cool. To the hotel. Right. Staycation. And because parking at the location was already scarce, because we're talking the Hollywood Hills, so those streets are narrow. You're usually parking on the street. Oh, you are? So it's all pretty much full. Yeah. Or you get like one space of a driveway. So the guys assured everyone that their guest cars would not block the street or anyone's drive and hired a valet for guests and and provided a shuttle that would bring them up to the house. They also hired private security for the party and even invited the neighbors to attend the party if they wished. They really, really tried to think of everything. Some of those neighbors did attend, David Cornbloom being one of them, and he stated, quote, it was not a loud, out-of-control party, but there are one or two neighbors who don't like the parties no matter what. And you're always going to have those people. I mean, it's like tough titties, though. Like, I mean, things are going to happen when you live next to people. And this is also Halloween weekend. It's a Friday night. Expect it. Don Resnick, another neighbor who also attended the party, described the guests as, quote, a yuppie kind of crowd, entertainment industry type people. Both she and David Kornblum estimated the number of partygoers to be about 125. That's a, I mean, that's a crowd. That's a crowd, but there's also 5,000 square feet. There's several rooms for them to go in. And yes, some were mingling outside, but just remember 125. Everyone is dressed in costume for Halloween. Anthony wore a black hooded sweatshirt with a black vest over it, khaki pants and black boots, and a red devil mask that had a black hood attached to it. 
And he mostly kept his mask pulled up and back on the top of his head because who wants to wear a plastic Halloween mask all night? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. I have a werewolf mask that I tried to keep on at a party once, and it was just stifling. You let me borrow that werewolf mask oh, yeah. for a show that I attended. Oh, that's right. And I sat in the audience with it on the entire time. Isn't it uncomfortable? I never took it <laughs> off. And when Matt tried to introduce me to his friends after the show, I still did not take it off. And so... They never knew who I was oh when I met God, them the second Kate, time. I love that. I wore that costume to a like a Halloween party at a house that I didn't really know everyone. And so when the person came to answer the door, I had it on and they were like, I'm sorry, uh, who are you? Like kind of nervous. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't even, and I took it off and yeah. I was like, it's me. So you identified I yourself did. when you were at the door. You can cut that out. <laughs> no, it's interesting because... Some people should identify themselves oh, yeah, yeah. when they come to the door. Oh, the way Kate said that, listeners. In the pocket of Anthony's vest was a pack of cigarettes that also contained one joint and a jar of blistex. Sounds like a good time. In addition, he carried a rubber prop gun, which he kept tucked in the waistband of his trousers. We don't know why he carried the prop gun with him. Perhaps he didn't have a pitchfork to go with his devil costume and Mm -hmm. felt it was the next best thing. We have no idea. Was the rubber gun only for that night or did he carry that like regularly? Unclear. Okay. No worries. The party began around 8 or 8.30 that evening, which means it didn't start popping until 9.30 probably. Costumed guests began arriving and getting shuttled up to the residence where there was music and drinking and... A bit of drug use, if we're being totally honest. It is a Beverly Hills Hollywood party. At 9.56 p.m., the LAPD's West Los Angeles Division received a call of a noise complaint. The caller stated a loud party was taking place at the home dubbed the castle. At 10.04 p.m., the LAPD assigned a patrol unit to investigate the complaint. By 11.18 p.m., no officers had been dispatched, and an LAPD operator tried calling that neighbor back that had made the complaint to see if police were still needed, but the operator didn't receive an answer. The call was eventually canceled because the West Los Angeles police station had other more important shit to deal with that evening. It's Halloween, right? Exactly. Meanwhile, partygoers are unaware a complaint has been made. They're just having a good time. Anthony and his friend Jeffrey Denton, one of the residents and hosts, was chatting with William Fry. I'm going to go with Fry, a friend of Jeffrey's and an acquaintance of Anthony's. They were hanging out up on an upper floor patio when Anthony took out his fake gun and showed the guys. William asked him, why would you bring a gun here? And Anthony said, it's not a real gun and put it back in his waistband. Beginning at midnight, the host had arranged for shuttles to take guests from the castle residence to a club for a second party. And these shuttles were going to run from 12 to 3 a.m. So people are starting to gather outside, making their way to the shuttles. At 11.53 p.m., police received a second noise complaint from one of the castle's neighbors. This was from a different phone number, and it's assumed it was not the same person that called the first time. It sounds to me like the noise complaints occur when the majority of people are arriving or leaving the party. Okay. Because during those times, you're going to have groups of people. People are going to be outside. Gathered I mean, outside. That's when it's going to be yeah, the loudest. Because they're being shuttled. Right. This second caller told the operator that there was a large number of people inside and outside the residence and stated that illegal drug activity might be taking place both inside and outside the party. 
This person sounds like a real drag. Chill. At 11.54 p.m., so one minute later, Mm -hmm. the LAPD assigned officers Terrell Hopper and his partner Natalie Humphreys to investigate the noise complaint. I hope I'm pronouncing those names correctly because they're spelled a little bit differently. The communication to these officers gave no mention of drug activity. They were just told there was a loud party Mm -hmm. with loud music and guests standing outside. Mm -hmm. That's the message they received. At 12.27 a.m., the officers were en route to the location. Meanwhile, before leaving to catch the shuttle to the club, Anthony, William, and Jeffrey walked down to Jeffrey's bedroom so they could use the bathroom in there before heading out. They've all been drinking. They all have to pee. No one wants to hold it, waiting on a shuttle that's going to take who knows how long. Jeffrey's bedroom was located on the lower level and could be accessed from both the interior of the house as well as the exterior. The door to the exterior entrance was glass, essentially like window panes, each pane being about 12 square inches. There was a walkway that ran alongside where his bedroom was located, next to a lap pool that featured a waterfall and a grotto, and mm. according to reports, was lit by candlelight that evening. Gorgeous. And I'll post a picture. Two other guests, Eric Schuberg and Stephen, whose last name that I can only assume is pronounced Sandwich, were also headed out and decided they too should use the bathroom before leaving. They walked around the outside of the building to the door of Jeffrey's bedroom. Although Anthony and his friends were still inside, the room was dark except for the light coming from the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Stephen Sandwich knocked on one of the glass panes asking to use the bathroom and Jeffrey let him in. Eric chose to wait outside for his friend. Officers Hopper and Humphreys arrived at the scene. At this point, there are conflicting events as to exactly what happened next. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to start with Officer Hopper's account, followed by what other witnesses said. When Hopper and Humphreys arrived at the location, they parked up by the house and saw a large group gathered outside. Mm -hmm. Both officers got out and Hopper asked the group, again, just a reminder, this is Hopper's account. Yes. Both officers got out and Hopper asked the group if they knew where the homeowners slash hosts of the party were. Hopper said no one could provide any information as to who the hosts even were, let alone where they were. As he and Humphreys walked up the driveway, they kept asking the whereabouts of the hosts, but no one could provide any information. He and Humphreys then went inside the house inquiring about the hosts, but again, received no information. So apparently just like no one knows whose house this is. They're all just partying. The officers then started walking from room to room and Hopper claimed that every person he asked had no idea who or where the hosts were. Hopper said he then heard, quote, some ruffling and some noise directly behind them outside. They walked out to investigate and found themselves in the walkway next to the lap pool. Mm -hmm. Hopper saw a white man, this was Eric Schuberg, standing outside and, quote, staring intently into the house through the panes of the glass door. Hopper approached, and as he did, Eric stepped back. Hopper looked into the room, and although it was dark, he could see three men inside. Two of them, Jeffrey and William, were white. The other man, six foot, four inch, 250 pound Anthony, was black. It should also be noted that Officer Hopper is black. Hopper took out his flashlight, shining it into the room. And if you're standing in a dark room and someone outside shines a flashlight at you, 
you're not going to be able to tell who that person is. Jeffrey stated that when the flashlight came on, it was difficult to see outside and he said, hey, who's there? There was no response. Hopper said with the flashlight shining, he saw what he believed to be a drug transaction taking place between Jeffrey and Anthony because they were, quote, facing each other with their hands outstretched toward one another. William later stated that the two guys were shaking hands. Hopper said when Jeffrey looked in the direction of the flashlight, he pulled his hands away, raised them in the air, and stepped backward. Which makes me ask, really? Because he couldn't really see you, so even if this was a drug transaction, I don't think his mind would immediately go to, oh, this is a cop. No. What happens next is Hopper's account that he gave during his interview. He said, quote, The male, black, turns and looks towards the glass door where I am positioned. He looks directly at me, and we make eye contact. Almost simultaneously, upon making eye contact, he reached for his waistband with his right hand and removed a blue steel semi-automatic handgun. At which point, fearing for my life, I drew my weapon from my holster, and after he removed the gun, he pointed the weapon, his gun, right at me. And fearful for my safety and my life, I fired my weapon, my service weapon. During this entire time, it happened very, very quickly. His gun was continually pointing at me. I fired my weapon, continually assessing the situation. And it was very, very rapid. And I fired. And he never dropped the weapon. He never made an attempt to drop the weapon or anything. The weapon stayed pointed toward me. While firing, I'm moving backwards toward a position of cover, and as this is happening, I recognize that my weapon is out of battery. In other words, out of bullets. Of the nine bullets fired, Anthony Lee was struck by four of them. Curious, though, is that despite Hopper's claim that Anthony kept his gun, his fake gun, pointed at him during this entire time, all four bullets that hit Anthony hit him on the back side of his body. One was to the back of Anthony's head, traveling from about three inches from the top of his head to below his right ear. This was actually a non-fatal wound. Another bullet entered the left side of Anthony's back and exited through the back of his left shoulder. Again, this wound was non-fatal. A third bullet hit Anthony on the right side of his back, perforating his left lung and causing it to collapse, then exiting through the front side of Anthony's chest. This was one of two fatal wounds. The other was caused by a bullet that entered the right side of Anthony's back, traveling through the right kidney, then the right adrenal gland, then liver, tearing through his abdomen, his esophagus, his heart, before becoming lodged in the left side of his chest. Because Hopper had fired his gun through a window pane, glass went flying. William realized his ear and face were cut and he ran out of the room. With his friend now sprawled out on the floor at the foot of his bed, Jeffrey knelt down next to him, rolling him from his stomach to his side, saying over and over, is this a joke? This is a joke, right? But then he noticed blood on his bed, and he could smell the gun smoke. Hopper said that when he realized he was out of bullets, he moved over to the wall next to the glass door, taking cover so he could safely eject his empty magazine and reload. And when he got back into his position... He saw that Anthony was lying motionless and no longer an imminent threat. 
By this point, Stephen Sandwich had left the room, along with William, but Hopper stated he ordered Jeffrey to stay in the room with his hands up. When Hopper made his way into the bedroom, he saw William in the hallway and ordered him to come back into the room. Then Hopper stated he examined Lee on the ground with his flashlight, noting the gun, which he could then see was a fake, was lying next to him. We're going to come back to this. Hopper and his partner, Humphreys, called for additional police units and paramedics, and when emergency crews arrived at 12.55 a.m., they found no signs of life from Anthony. He was pronounced dead at 1.04 a.m. on Saturday, October 28, 2000. Anthony Dwayne Lee was just 39 years old. I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of things to say. Do you want me to hang on to them? or Some of them might get answered. Okay. Go ahead and tell me, though. I'm just... This is ridiculous, just to start off with. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, it's a Halloween party. Number two, they didn't know the cops were there. Correct. So, like, if he, which it doesn't even sound like he was pointing his gun at Hopper, which I'm sure we'll find out more about. Like, I could see at a fucking Halloween party if some people dressed as cops are there. And there and were people dressed as cops okay. there. So I could see just having a little bit of fun, like pointing your fake gun at them, like, oh, hold up, stick up, or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. This is horrific. It is. And we're going to get into that. And it's also kind of disgusting. Like, it gets worse. God damn it, Kate. So I mentioned there were conflicting reports about how the events unfolded. And it starts with Hopper and Humphreys arriving at the scene. Hopper stated he asked multiple people where he could find the host, but not one of them knew who the hosts were or where they could be found. Well, and everybody's drunk, too. Yes. Everyone is drunk, including all of the men in that bedroom. Yeah. And Eric Schuberg standing outside. Just looking at them. But Humphreys had a slightly different story. She said that after she and Hopper had parked the car and got out, they started walking towards the driveway where they encountered one of the men hired as a security guard. This security guard was Tremaine Webster. She asked him if he knew where the hosts were, and Tremaine said they were somewhere in the house and he would go look for them. She states that she and Hopper followed him up the drive and into the house, where she states she, quote, lost sight of him. So she and Hopper began wandering around on their own. She eventually noticed a door leading out to that walkway, and she and Hopper decided to go and have a look around. And then her account basically matches up with Hopper's as to what happened next. Tremaine Webster, however, one of those security guards, stated the officers did approach him and asked him the whereabouts of the host. Mm -hmm. He pointed up towards the house and said somewhere in there, but says he never walked with them up the driveway and never entered the residence. He said he'd been hired to stand by the gate at the end of the driveway and make sure the shuttles were operating in an orderly manner as they brought guests to and from the house. There was another security guard, Tremaine's friend, James Partey. James Partey, or Partey, also gave a statement, although it does change. Originally, he said he was the only guard at the party and only heard about the shooting from a guest as they ran out. But later, he stated the reason he said he was the only guard is because his friend Tremaine had criminal charges pending against him and didn't want to be part of the investigation. In James Partey's second statement, he said he had been down by the parking area because his job was to go back and forth between the driveway and the bottom of the hill, checking on the parked cars and overall making sure things were running smoothly. Mm -hmm. 
He said when he got back up to the gate, Tremaine informed him that officers had arrived and were looking for the owners. James said he met the officers inside the house and told them he would go look for the owners. He said he went upstairs and after a few minutes found one of the hosts and was letting him know that police had shown up. While he was talking to him, he heard what ended up being the The gunshots. gunshots. So you have Officer Hopper, who said he asked multiple people about the host and no one gave him any answers. Okay. To a guy running security who said he left the officers waiting inside the house while he went to get a host. In every instance, partygoers claim the officers never once identified themselves. The officers also didn't have a search warrant, so the fact that they just wandered through the home without IDing themselves, checking out the different rooms, feels a little bit illegal. I mean, it's a private party and it's private property. I don't yes. know law. I don't know the laws, but it doesn't sound it like you did. I looked it up. They can't do that. They cannot do that. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. Unless they have valid reason to think that someone is imminent danger, that they need to go and get that suspect. But they're just responding to a noise complaint. To a noise complaint. There are no suspects. Ballistics tests conducted determined that the amount of time it took for Officer Hopper to draw his gun and fire all nine bullets was about two seconds. What the fuck? Two seconds? In that two seconds, he stated that Anthony never stopped aiming his gun at him and that he, quote, continually assessed the situation. How are you assessing a situation if you were just... Unloading nine bullets rapid in two firing. seconds. I didn't even know those handguns could do that. I didn't either. And the part that sticks out to me is that When he realized he was out of bullets... He reloaded. He just moved towards the wall for protection so he could reload. And let another nine nine rounds go into that guy? But my question is, why didn't he move towards that wall when he first felt threatened? Right. Why go straight to... Why immediately pull your gun out and start shooting? exactly. Something's off here. Not to mention, he's firing... Immediately with a civilian right next to him, along with two other men in the room who, I mean, one of them did get injured. So he's like not really taking into account. He's just firing. It does. I Yeah. It doesn't feel like things necessarily should go in that order. I mentioned that Hopper said he ordered Jeffrey and William to stay in the room. Yeah. And that's when he saw the gun lying next to Anthony and determined it to be fake. But... Jeffrey doesn't mention any of this in his statement. He said after the shooting, he was ordered out of the room and wasn't allowed back in until the investigation was complete, which makes more sense. He also stated he never saw Anthony pull the gun from his waistband, nor did he see it lying next to him when he knelt next to him and rolled him over. William said he did see Anthony take his gun out, but he never raised it up, nor did he point it towards the flashlight. He said that he realized he'd been cut, he ran out of the room, but he went back in and saw Jeffrey down by Anthony. He ran out of the room again and was treated by paramedics when they arrived. Mm -hmm. Did Anthony pull out his gun and aim it, or didn't he? I don't think it matters. Did he think the person holding the flashlight was just another party guest? Of course he he did. Trying to scare them for for some reason. There were a few people at the party dressed in costume as LAPD, and because the officers never identified themselves, the guys in the bedroom had no way of knowing the The police police were at the house. 
Did Hopper order everyone to stay in the room, contrary to the statements given by both Jeffrey and William? Mm -hmm. Or did he order them out, examine Anthony, and get extremely lucky when he found a gun, fake or not, tucked into Anthony's waistband, then planted at Anthony's side? Probably. I'm not saying that's what happened, it's but a possibility. it is possible. Yeah. It's hard to know. Police stated there were several hundred people at the party when Hopper and Humphrey showed up, which contradicts the neighbor's claims that it was around 125. Other partygoers stated at most there were 200. And yes, that is a lot of people, but it's significantly less than several hundred. Yeah. When LAPD spokeswoman Charlotte Broughton was questioned whether or not Hopper shouted a warning before he began firing, she refused to say, which means he did not. She defended Hopper, saying, quote, if you feel your life is threatened, you react in the way you were trained. City Councilwoman Jackie Goldberg, however, criticized the officers for wandering through the house rather than waiting by the door for the hosts, saying, quote, this was a complaint about noise. No one should be dead. The LAPD was quick to label Anthony a suspect. Anytime they referred to him, they would say the suspect XYZ. Fuckers. Something his friends and family vehemently opposed. And of course, the narrative was that this tragedy was somehow Anthony's fault because he aimed a gun at an officer. That's what they're trying to, to put out there. Police Chief Bernard Park said, quote, You put an officer in a very tough situation to try to determine whether it's a replica or a real gun. Chief Park said Hopper didn't have time to shout a warning. Um, yes, he did. And said Hopper was also a victim here. <sighs> Take away the uniform and it's one man murdering another man. That's what this is. The LAPD conducted an internal investigation. Internal being the key word. Mm -hmm. And no surprise here, found no wrongdoing by Officer Hopper. How? 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 Because it was How? an internal investigation. Kevin. How, Kate? There was uh, that pesky little fact that Anthony had been struck in the back. And the LAPD said, oh, he can explain that. How? Tell me. They hired, LAPD hired, expert Dr. William Lewinsky, who had extensive experience on the subject of officer-involved shootings. And he conducted a bunch of tests that I won't bore you with and concluded that of the nine bullets fired... The first five must have missed, allowing Anthony time to turn away from the gunfire, which caused the remaining four bullets to strike him on his backside. Three in the back, one in the back of the head. How? How? In two, sec in two seconds, nine bullets came at that guy. Mm -hmm. How is he flipping around and... And the thing is, it's impossible to know whether or not those first five bullets missed or if some of those were you of the four that hit, hit Anthony. Him. Exactly. You cannot That's determine that. That's such fucking disgusting bullshit. And obviously, like, you have to know, like, where the bullets went in because it doesn't sound like all of them shot out right. through him. Like, you said one got lodged mm -hmm. in him. Mm -hmm. So you would see where that went. This is disgusting. It's disgusting. I it hate is. this. I fucking hate this. And they're trying to cover it up to save their own asses instead of taking, you know, any kind of blame for it. Exactly. They fucked up. The LA they fucked up. The, own it. The LAPD protects their own. And the district attorney. Is that why they have such a cunty reputation? Yeah. And at the, in the time of this crime, 
because it I do say that it was a crime what this it's officer a crime. did. It's a murder. They were already under fire for a lot of issues regarding race and planting evidence and that kind of thing. I'm not going to go into all those reports. You can look it up if you want to know more about what was happening with the LAPD at this time. But needless to say, they weren't a squeaky clean department. Yeah. And the district attorney agreed with the findings, stating Officer Hopper acted in lawful self-defense and was justified in the killing. Ironically, according to Anthony's friend Mary Lynn, his biggest fear in life was being killed by cops because he was a tall black man. Yeah, no shit. The day after his death, his sister Tina hired attorney Johnny Cochran, famous for serving on O.J. Simpson's defense team. Cochran filed a $100 million wrongful death lawsuit against Hopper and the LAPD on Tina's behalf. Good. What's Uh. interesting, Tina worked as an assistant to the police chief in Sacramento, which was just like wild when I found that out. And she criticized Chief Parks for trying to sway public opinion about her brother before all the facts were known. She told the LA Times, quote, This whole thing makes me concerned about the truthfulness of the department. The whole press conference they put on saying that my brother pointed the gun at that officer of you I never supported, trying to sway public opinion, they showed a callous indifference to the taking of a life. And she's exactly right. Johnny Cochran said, quote, LAPD has never seen a shooting they didn't think they could justify. Wow. Eventually, officials settled the suit for $225,000. And even though it was far less than what she asked for, Tina said, it's not the money, but the message that matters. She said, quote, if it makes them hold their officers just a bit more accountable, if they take more seriously investigating officer-related shootings, then at least it's a step in the right direction. Jeffrey Denton also filed a lawsuit against the LAPD for trespassing and post-traumatic stress, and William Frey sued for the injuries he incurred from the shooting, as well as post-traumatic stress. You know what? Let me do a quick little search, because I couldn't find anything at the time if either of them won their case. Okay. I'd be curious to find out. Yeah, I still don't see anything regarding the outcomes of those suits. Okay. Might not have been public. Maybe not. When news spread of Anthony's death, people were shocked because... What year was this again? 2000. Okay. Because he was a Buddhist. He hated violence. He had just become a leader in his organization a few hours before this party. This was a guy who chanted twice a day for world peace. Yeah. The theater community really showed up. Those he'd worked with in Seattle were devastated by the news his friend Tim Bond said he was, quote, an incredible role model for a way to live a life. Mm-hmm. There was a vigil held outside the West Los Angeles police station to protest the shooting. Good. Nice. Initially, Anthony's death made national news. Sure. But a few days later, the presidential election between oh, George W. And Bush and Al Gore forgot about it. took place. And that was such a close race, it dominated the headlines. Oh, that, I remember that. Multiple memorials were held, including in Sacramento, where he grew up, and in L.A. His friend Ramon McLean said so many people showed up for the memorial that they had to put TVs outside showing the service because not everyone could get in. His Buddhist friends were there, along with his Baptist family members. He grew up in a Baptist household. And despite their different beliefs, they were all holding hands with one another. That's lovely. 
Anthony's girlfriend and several of his ex-girlfriends showed up. They all sat together and held hands. Mm -hmm. And when his final performance, his role on ER, Mm -hmm. aired that November, a bunch of them got together to watch it, and the show dedicated the episode to Anthony. Oh, that's nice. That's really nice of them. In article after article that I read, those that described Anthony all said he was a gentleman, easygoing, peaceful, charming, and gregarious. Mm -hmm. He made people feel good. His friend Ramon said, quote, he was and remains an inspirational soul. Do I think Officer Hopper went to that party thinking, I'm going to kill someone tonight? No. Do I think mistakes were made by him and his partner in not identifying themselves and wandering on their own through the property? Yes. Do I think Hopper had other options he could have pursued that would not have resulted in the loss of life? Absolutely. And that's it, Misfits. It's a rough one. That's, I, I, I'm kind of speechless here, Kate. Like this is, that's, that's a mess. And I just, I don't understand there. To me, there's not really two sides to this because there were precautions and measures that weren't taken by the police that resulted in his, Anthony's death. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't have known what was going on. Absolutely not. No one would have, Mm-mm. except for the security guard mm-hmm. who's like trying to find the host. Exactly. He straight up murdered him. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way. And the cop was just reacting to fear. And this cop was 27 at the time. He, it was his third year on the force. Oh, he's a new, I didn't realize he was like kind of a rookie. He's kind of a newbie. He had never been involved in a shooting, which I thought was interesting that this is his first he immediately like goes whole hog they had absolutely no reason to walk around the property and wander around no they never identified themselves that is what is so bizarre to me especially considering everyone is in costume and there are other people dressed as police officers there wouldn't you also need to to see what was going on in that room identify and say police turn around or police he never did or i mean but you wouldn't even know if that's real because you don't know police are there you just don't fucking know exactly and remember they're standing in the dark they're getting ready to head out of this party and someone outside shines a flashlight right in their eyes they can't see shit they can't see anything they don't know what's going on what the fuck and then suddenly a man is dead yeah in a matter of Two yeah. seconds. Sorry, there should have been a criminal prosecution against Hopper and I would also say whatever her name is. Natalie Humphreys. Humphreys. Mm-hmm. No, I nope. don't buy it. And there, nothing ever happened. That's it. That's it. They're fine. They're out there and they're fine. The LAPD was like, we'll investigate this ourselves and we'll just find people who can make us look good and agree with what we want to say happened. This has got to stop, Kate. This has got to stop. And it still happens, like, oh, consistently. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see people on cell phone videos, like, who have just been shot mm-hmm. in scenarios almost kind of the same as this one. There's no imminent danger. Exactly. There were no suspects to be chased at this party. You're at a Halloween party, motherfucker. It was people having a good time. I can't. I really can't. I don't. Something's got to give. 
there's got to be like more training. There's got to be accountability. I mean, we're learning this the now. The accountability is the thing. We're learning this now, but I don't feel like people are taking it very seriously. And this is very like topical and Absolutely. has been topical yeah, for, for decades. decades. Yeah. yeah. If not even centuries. Yeah. Hold the police accountable. This is probably the most horrific case you've done, Kate. I mean, it's just scary. I mean, we're talking about Halloween. This is like reality. What's interesting is that one of Anthony's friends, I didn't put this in the notes, but I'll go ahead and say it, said that Anthony would have probably forgiven that officer. Oh, I, you know. Because that was just the kind of person He's obviously a good person, and we know this. Oh, absolutely. But I will not forgive them for him. Like, that's... Yeah. And you do not have to forgive people. Mm -hmm. But I mean, given his kind of spiritual beliefs that are grounded in, you know, reality rather than some cultism that, Mm -hmm. you know, you and I talk about a lot. Of course, he probably would have. That's it, guys. Uh, I know a lot of you will be attending Halloween parties this weekend. Be safe. Stay safe out there. Look out for each other. Um, have fun. That's that's the overall. That's how we want to end this. Let's have fun. Kate, I bought my, or I have my costume ready. I bought all the stuff. I'm probably just going to be in my skeleton onesie I love again. it. And I'm going to have a full beat face of makeup. You know how like people um, say... Your beat their face to put makeup on. It's like a. I literally have never, you've never heard, heard that, that expression. Like no. you beat your like beat your face like. You can say it over and over. It doesn't mean I've, <laughs> I. I'm just gonna say it until Kate says she understands. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I'm gonna have my whole face done up. Got it. Colored contacts. Oh my. Get ready. Get I'm excited for ready. it. Ready. We're gonna be in this closet spooking it up. We have to figure out how to film that. Yeah. I was also thinking of a joke when we were sitting here. I was like, okay, I haven't spent this much time in a closet since I was 15. (laughs) I think it's pretty funny. It's hilarious. Thank you. Uh, We'll be back one more time for an October episode before spooky season ends. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a fun one. I don't want to say fun. It's going to be... I was going to say, I don't know that it's It's not fun. fun at all. It's really... Interesting historically. I was gonna say, I think people will be interested yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. Kevin's covering that one. I'm so excited. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts on this episode, you can leave us a comment on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Horrorwood Podcast. Or send us an email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're feeling generous, you can jump on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorwood podcast. Uh, and as we say here at Horrorwood, don't do murder. Have fun at Halloween.